Hello, hello, and welcome to Son of a Pitch, where we actually have the better host this time round. Is that you, not Max? Fuck, what's my line? Oh, no. Welcome to this week's episode of Son of a Pitch, where we have two different hosts today. It's me, Bianca, copywriter here from Sydney, and with me is the amazing strategist, person extraordinaire, Tilly. Hello, hello. How are you going? Hey, Till. So, do you remember who we had on this episode? We have Dee today. So, we speak to... I don't know what I'm saying. not Vince. Hello not Matt. Oh my goodness. How are you going? What's going on here? Hello and welcome to this special episode all female panel with Tilly. Hello. Hello Bianca. Oh, sorry I forgot your name. Oh <laughs> I no. Go. I was about to call you Matt. <laughs> I'm not Matt. We'll start okay, again. Start Vince, again. Scratch that. Scratch Vince. that. Okay. <laughs> Starting now. Starting now. So on this episode of Son of a Pitch we're talking to Dee Madigan. Now, Dee, if you haven't heard from her, you're living under a rock. Crawl out under, give her a Google. It's creative director of Campaign Edge, political campaigner, strategist, author, speaker, media commentator, and overall total boss. And quite frankly, she has got some insights for everyone listening today. Absolutely. She is a no bullshit operator. We dive into her life as a political campaigner, her career today, life as a working mum, and her Twitter feed that doesn't hold back. Yeah, so we'd also love to throw out a small content warning on this episode. For anyone who knows D, the C-bomb is on the regular, the F-bomb is happening. So really turn that up on the bus today. You're going to love it. <laughs> yeah, that's it. The C-word's in there quite a lot. <laughs> so sit back, relax, and let these wonderful women take over your ear holes for the next hour. Looking forward to it. All right, now can you do a Miami uh, ad school run? Um, what was Miami ad school again? So all you got to say is um, everyone who's the son of a pitch listener, they get Miami ad school's application fee waived. It is completely free. Cool. And our regular listeners will know all about this. But for those in the back, Miami ad school, sign up today and you guys will get all your application fees waived. So if you are a future strategist, marketer, advertising, creative, suit, whatever, get on board, get to Miami ad school. Don't. Yeah, yeah, cool. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. That's do you cool. want to add in a bit how you and Max have done it and absolutely loved it? Yeah, yeah. Do that. Okay. So you could just do that add on now and I'll just edit it as if it was on the end of that. Okay. You do, it. do you want me to do it? Yeah. Yep. <laughs> I'll do the first one and then yeah, you can do the second one. <laughs> <laughs> and then I'll just swoop in and be like, as Tilly was saying, <laughs> what Tilly meant was, <laughs> Tilly said a thing. <laughs> okay. Miami Ad School is such a great way to get your foot in the door. Max and Vince have both done it and absolutely loved it. They were, were, you, were they top dogs, Bianca, in their Yeah, I'm pretty sure they're top dogs. Don't let them tell you that. Remember, keep them small, keep their heads in check. Their egos are too big. <laughs> cool. Yeah, guys, so really speak for radio, can't go to wait. <laughs> <laughs> I reckon the entire intro for this episode is just going to be you two laughing at each other. 
Tilly's face for radio can't go to waste. Yeah. Anyway, all right. Thank you, girls. Thank you so much. Uh, oh. I, I will edit that. Uh, son of a pitch. Yeah, this is something you don't want to miss. Uh-huh. Interviews with creatives and the best strategists. All the top in Australia who steady making moves. Uh-huh. The podcast that puts you right in the pitch room. Yeah, professionals in this market. Uh, time to get it started. Uh, give us some complex problems. So let's see how you can solve it. Tune in with some Aussies. I bet you can't resist. Yeah, yeah, get it hyped. This is son of a pitch. Killer. Hey Dee, are you there? Dee, what are you watching? Married at First Sight. Hello. What are you watching? Because I didn't get a chance to watch it last night. Fuck. No, neither did we. Don't give any spoilers. I still need to start. (laughs) All right, Vince, just so your podcasting awareness editing, we're going to start now. All right, Vince. Thanks. (laughs) Thanks, Vince. All right, welcome to Son of a Pitch, coronavirus edition. Tilly, how are you? It is a corona edition. I am very well. Um, we're currently sitting in my tiny lean apartment um, and trying not to catch the coronavirus. So. Yeah, we're not 1.5 metres apart for anyone listening, so please make sure you do sanitise your earphones after this. <laughs> Our elbows are touching. Our elbows are touching. So, in case you missed it, we are not Max and Vince today. We are Tilly and Bianca, and we're ready to do an all-female episode. Very exciting. Tilly, you ready? We're ready. We're ready to roll. And with us today is our guest, Dee Madigan. Dee, hello. Welcome. Hi, guys. Or girls, as I should say. Hi, girls. Yeah, did you just assume my gender, Dee? Yeah, I know. So. <laughs> yeah, so Dee is the creative director at Campaign Edge. She's a political campaigner. She's a strategist. She's an author. Speaker, total boss. Oh, shit, sorry. <laughs> I pressed something. On, I pressed a, an email and it had a video in it. D, anything to add to the list? No, that pretty much covers it. Media slut, I prefer than media commentator, but sure, I'll go with yours. <laughs> media slut on every network. That's Who were you on with last night, D? Um, I was on Channel 7, so I do a show called The Latest on Channel 7. Usually it's Wednesday nights, but it's all a bit movable at the moment with coronavirus, but we can't go into the studio anymore so we do how did you manage that from home with um (laughs) skyping on my laptop on my bed it was kind of cool the only problem is i can't you know really get a professional makeup artist to come to my house for a skype thing so is there not a filter for that yet so Dee, can you just give us a bit of a rundown on your career today and how you got there um, right through from, or for, starting from what you studied and when you studied and where you studied um, right through to where you are today? Sure, sure. So like all I ever really wanted to do was write. That was kind of it. Um, but I never wanted to starve for my art. Um, so when I finished school, after I did my HSC, I enrolled in a Bachelor of Business in Property and my plan was to make a million dollars and retire when I was 40 and write. Um, but after a year of that course, I just, you know, I was terrible at it and I was so uninterested in it. It was so, so boring. And I thought, okay, so I rethought that and then I switched. I just sort of thought, oh, I'll just do a teaching degree, an English high school English teaching degree because you get to, you know, it's pretty low contact hours. I was sort of was going through uni on, you know, the, the homeless allowance on Ausstudy. So I had no money at all. So any course that allowed me to work extra jobs was useful. That was easy. Finished my degree. But again, you know, I was never one of those teachers who was motivated to teach. And I taught for a year at Fort Street High, which is a really, really good school. It's selective school. The kids are great. Yeah. It's kind of as good as it gets as a teacher. And for me, it was still, I still wanted to be the kid at the back of the class playing up, not the person at the front. And at the same time, I was working at the Clock Hotel in Surrey Hills as um, 
firstly as a barmaid, then bar manager, and then they offered me a chance to manage the hotel. And I, Perry? I was there last night, actually. Oh, yeah? Have fun. Oh, this was before it was done up into a yuppie pub when it was a proper inner city rock and roll pub. Oh, yes, yeah, so you got your little rock and roll chic outfit on? Oh, yeah. Right. Oh, yeah. And, um, and when I was doing that, a lot of bad guys used to come in there to drink because I suspect it's where they could get the best cocaine. And yep, very good. What, what decade was this? Sorry? <laughs> what year was this-ish? Uh, nah, early 90s, early to mid-90s. I mean, that is peak cocaine period for advertising. Yeah, it was. And, um, and I used to call them artistic prostitutes. So, like, you know, you're just selling yourself out, you know, for your art. But then I just thought, oh, do you know what? I reckon I could do that. And they encouraged me to do award school. And yeah. back then it was really good. If you, if you got in the top ten in award school, you automatically got a job placement for three months that was paid. And it wasn't great pay, but it was a livable wage. Well, that's pretty good. That was huge. So I got a, and it was me, they teamed me up with some guy. Actually, I didn't come in the top ten. I came 11th. And oh, that was God. I'm in the top 10 and then they wanted to partner him with someone so they interviewed and I got it through then. So um, okay. after three months they got rid of him and kept me, which was nice. Nice. Yeah. And um, so I sort of, that's basically how I got into advertising and I was there. It was when I started, it was Lintas, which was a big old multinational, but we had some great brands. So it was Johnson & Johnson and Commonwealth Bank and Lever Rex owner and stuff like that. So it was big, big budgets. Yeah, and was, I think nine teams. So, and you know, it was a huge agency. It was a, wasn't renowned for its creativity, but I still managed to sort of, you know, do pretty well with awards and stuff there. And then that became Low Hunt, which became more creative, ostensibly more creative, but I won less awards when it was Low Hunt. Right. And I kept thinking about changing agencies, but every time I think about changing agencies, the ag- agency changed so significantly around me. I think, oh, well. I'll hang around. And then you get to the point where you start to think about having children and you, you know that you're getting closer to your long service. So that's the point where you're like, oh, well, I might as well hang around for that. How yeah. long were you there for? Nine years. Oh, my gosh. Can you imagine being at anywhere for nine years now? No, I couldn't have had you for nine years. I'd have to, you know, block you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. My pleasure. And, um, then, but then at nine years they were doing a thing. They offered a voluntary redundancy and they said, you know, with this massive big check, and I was eight months pregnant, and I was over the place by then. You do get well and truly over the, any place. Yeah. And they said, you know, it's voluntary though. So do you want to think about it? It's like, no, I do not hand me that check, please. Yeah. Um, so then I, I was at home um, with my son for about... Oh, six or seven months and I just started working from home. You know, there's enough stuff that you can do work from home. And I think that's the real danger for women in advertising is when you have kids, there is enough work to keep you going and you sort of think, oh, no, I'm okay. I don't need to go back into agencies. But what happens is eventually that work dries up and you've got nothing really built around yeah. you. And, and, um, and so I was really, really conscious of that. And I also know it's an industry, you know, that values youth and penises far more than it should yeah absolutely so I went back into I had one I took a job at Cummins for a while it was supposed to be three days a week they were working me five days a week never paid me for it and and after a while it's like I bugger that yeah Uh, went back sorry you were working three you were working you were paid to work three days a week but you were working five days all the time they'd say can you come in can you come in and no time did they ever offer to pay for those days and then when I was on maternity leave they needed some help on something, so I worked on it, then sent them in the invoice 
And they said, oh, no, that's way too expensive. And it was just a standard invoice. And I was just like, oh, my God. And then I wrote my resignation letter immediately. So do you think that they thought that you were going to do that out of the goodness of your I don't own? know. I kind of think they did. And it was just like, what yes. the shit? Do they not think people have lives to live and food to buy? And, and you had a child at this point as well. Children to feed? It was just extraordinary and um and also i had heard that i was up for creative director position and then they found out that i was pregnant and then all of a sudden i was yeah so anyway there's a whole lot of reasons why i just thought you know what it's time to sort of work about work out what i really want to do and at the time i was also i've always loved politics i've been a member of the labor party since i was 18 yeah and um and i was writing um political sort of stuff for newspapers on one side and then doing advertising on the other and I just thought, gee, it'd be great to be able to combine them. And I got the opportunity to do the 2012 Queensland election only because any creative with half a brain was running the other direction because it was going to be an absolute um, smashing. But yeah. I thought, oh, I can do that. Um, and anyway, we got smashed. But it made me realise that it was the first time I was doing something where I really felt like I was exactly, exactly doing what I loved most. And, and which was an extraordinary sort of thing to think, God, this is it. And it's elections are like heroin. Like they're so addictive. They're exhausting in every single way, physically, emotionally, mentally. And then, you know, two weeks and you say never again. And then two weeks later, you're like, oh, okay, I need another hit. For those and who I, don't know, how long in like preparation do you need to do a political like strategy for before a campaign? Because it's not just the campaign period. No, for that one, we started, I think it was July the year before, I would fly up for a day and just sit um, in the State Secretary's office and we would just sort of spitball ideas. And then you start that sort of a year, you know, nearly a year out. Or well, now we start a year out, but then it was, um, I think it was probably eight months out. And then it was two, one day a week, then two days a week, then three days a week as you sort of get closer. And you were getting paid for that, right? Yeah, 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 of course. That's good. <laughs> so across the board with political campaigning, do you think there is a lack of understanding from their end about how to build a brand and um, how that can work for them long term rather than just thinking about it before the nation's due to vote sort of six weeks before? Yeah, look, I think they're getting better at understanding that. Um, but also the, the downside to that is if you make it feel too much like an obvious brand people get turned off as well they they we know po politicians are brands political parties are brands but if you try to sell them obviously as a brand there is a downside to that too particularly now I would have said eight or nine years ago that was the way to do it now I'm much more likely to try to at least make it appear to be far more grassrootsy than yeah than, far more personal yeah, yeah. And yeah. genuine, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I hate the word authentic, but... But authentic. I mean, ScoMo, authenticity, 100%, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. What are politicians like as clients? Do they have souls? Um, generally, bizarrely, the politician is seldom your client. Okay. Um, it's the, the, the state secretary is the campaign director. Yeah. Um, so the politicians actually don't get as much of a say, if you like, in the actual campaign stuff as you would think. And, nor, and and they've got other things they need to be doing as well. So they tend to trust the campaign team. We sort of, you know, and they come and sort of get them to do what we need to do. Yeah. But that's run by the party behind the politician. Okay. In yeah. some campaigns where I've worked with directly with the politicians, it's much harder. Right. Because because they, when they're personally involved, they've got opinions that aren't necessarily correct. They're, 
they lack the objectivity that's required sometimes. Yeah. So when you're coming up with a strategy, is it you work with the campaign manager, not the politician themselves? Correct. Correct. And how, um, like, how do you kind of devise a strategy? Like how, what is the process to do that? Um, you start with focus groups, which always get a really bad rap, but focus groups are just literally a room of eight to 10 voters who can barely remember who they voted for last election because they're the ones you're interested in, the sort of the disengaged swinging voter. And you just sort of start to ask them questions, like not maybe we have the research to do it and we just sit in the back room listening behind a pane of glass, asking them, um, you know, about politics and then you listen to the things that they're noticing, the things they're not noticing, the things they're feeling, and you you don't make any decisions based on one group. But if there is a a, um, a trend, if you like, then you start to think, okay, that's interesting. And then from those initial listening groups, if you like, you devise a strategy and maybe a four, three or four different ways into that strategy. And then, again, you test that strategy with groups as well to see if, hey, if you heard this, is that likely to make you more interested or more likely to vote or less likely to vote, those sort of things. Yeah, because you did the um, first, so for the Queensland campaign, you put Anastasia Palaszczuk in there in 2015. Yeah. And so that was one that, were you meant to win, like, were you expected to win that one with Anastasia or? No, no, no one thought we'd win that one. That was our best sort of strategy was, there was still a lot of Labor brand damage from the election before. So yeah. We knew that everyone hated Campbell Newman, so we wanted this to be a protest vote. We didn't really want people to think too much about. So you were quite surprised. It was more not vote for Labor, but rather don't vote for Liberal. Yeah, all, all elections are like that. Swinging yeah. voters against things, not for things. Look, I, I, yes and no. I was surprised only because I, I like to think negatively about elections. I like to assume we won't win. But every on-ground indication seemed to say we were in a very good place and our polling was saying we are in a very good place. So... All the indicators actually said we were in a very good place. I just like to think we weren't because I'd rather be surprised, um, sort of happily surprised than surprisingly disappointed, I guess. And out of all the campaigns, what's your hit rate? How good are you? Um, I have won the last 10 in a row. Hell yeah, you have. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm, I'm hoping that, you know, that continues. If anyone out there is trying to re-elect themselves, high school, yeah. you know, elections, class president, <laughs> contact Dean Madigan. Look, don't say that because they will. And seriously, guys, if you don't have a budget, don't call me. I get people go, but it's for such a good cause. It's like, so is paying my staff. Yeah. <laughs> rent, like, rent doesn't pay, isn't paid for exactly. experience. <laughs> and, Dee, how have you found the nature of voting change since you um, started in politics? And, you know, have you digital found, effects. Yeah, you know, absolutely. Everything like that. Have you found that especially, you know, younger people coming through are having more in a, an opinion or wanting to be a little bit more educated in who they vote for? Oh, look, I wish that was the case. There's still a lot who sit there and then you go, who do you vote for? Oh, just whoever my dad says to vote for. And you're like, oh, great. Um, look, what has changed really is voting patterns is um, early voting. That used to be a very small amount of people and now it's up 20, 30, 40, even they reckon sometimes 50%. Wow, that's really high. Yeah, is that's really, really high. So that's something that has changed significantly. The other main thing is, of course, is the use of social media in campaigns. It's just changed the, you know, the market. It used to be you could, you know, you only had to make a couple of TV ads and some radio spots and billboards and now it's, you know, 6,000 different pieces of content. So the amount of work you have to do is significantly more. And, and you have to make those content that's relevant for that audience and that's relevant to the platform you're putting it on as well. So it means making them quite bespoke, which can be incredibly time-consuming. 
yeah, correct me if I'm wrong, but um, when you were working on the last campaign in Queensland, we were doing stuff that we could really go down, we could create a piece of content that was audience specific and electorate specific and only targeted to those electorates and only published in those electorates. Yeah, that's true. And, and you know, the different, um, different mediums let you target in different kind of ways. But yeah, you can be really, really specific. But I think if there's anything that anyone needs to learn from the last federal election, which I didn't do, I'd like to point out, is that <laughs> even though you have got to have lots of different pieces of content to appeal to different pieces, different target markets, you have to have one clear strategy. So yep. different ways of saying the same thing, essentially, not saying a whole lot of millions of different things because because there's still a whole lot of crossovers and people are still seeing things in different spaces. So if you've got messages on one thing about something entirely different to messages on another, entirely different to messages on another, it's actually just really confusing for people. Yeah, it's that whole throw a hundred balls, catch none, throw one ball, catch it kind of thing. Not stealing my sayings. Single-minded messaging, Dee. You talk about <laughs> quite frankly, I use it all the time. For those in the back who don't know, Dee and I used to work together. Dee is the one who gave me my big break in copywriting and, and she she's left a phenomenal person. Me. And I what, sorry? She left me. I left you. <laughs> I'm traitorous. Oh, God. <laughs> it was time to leave the nest. <laughs> we didn't push her out. Um, she left all of her own. We didn't push too hard. Anyone's listening, hi Bianca. Hi Bianca. Yeah, guys, hi me. I'm a really great, great personality, great chat, will work. Unbearably <laughs> perky, but if you can put up with the perky, <laughs> I'm joking. Unbearably perky. I'll it's take like Pollyanna. It's like Pollyanna on steroids. Oh, Vince, leave this in. I need a job. <laughs> <laughs> um, but speaking about, you know, how perky and wonderful I am, Brand Bianca, Brand Dean Madigan, and how did you create that? Because you are on every first episode of every season of Gruen that's ever started. You're always on television, always doing media commentary. You have something that people know you for and you go out and you sell that over and over again. How did you do it? How did you build it? I sorry, Dean, I just want to jump on that as well because you are, you, you're incredibly smart and you're incredibly witty and Australia wants to know your opinion on a lot of stuff. So I guess how do you craft that in a way that is, is there a strategy behind that or is it just be yourself? Yeah. yeah look, there is no strategy. And I, well, 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 there is a strategy. I guess when I got to probably just over the age of 40, my, my thing I decided was when in doubt, say it anyway. Like this idea that you sort of sense yourself. I sort of got sick of it. And partly you also realised that, you're not faking it. You know how, I don't know, when you're younger, you always have this sort of thing in the back of your mind. It's like, maybe I'm not very good. Maybe I am just faking it. Eventually you'll be pleased to know that goes away. So oh, there, is goodness, I live with that. <laughs> there is a confidence that comes. And I think it was just that, that thing of, I'm just going to do what I want. But no, I've had people say like, cause I do a current affair and someone go, well, why do you do a current affair? It hurts your brand. It's like, well, no, I don't think it does. B, they also, they pay me. And they're perfectly nice and they turn up to my office and they set up and I say something. And, and the same with everything else. Like, I, you know, again, I did Married at First Sight podcast on Sunday night and people go, um, hell yeah. Oh, why are you doing that? It's, you know, why do you watch that show? And it's like, do you know what? I will do, and I think where it works for me is it's very hard to pigeonhole me. Yes. It's, so that actually works in my favour. So whether it's something on politics or on advertising, or on some flippant sort of crappy TV show that I happen to love, mm. um, I'm, you know, they know that I can talk on it and that also I'm really lucky in that my brain works fast so, so I can think fast and I can speak fast. I speak way too fast, obviously. 
But all those sort of, and also I'm a total smart ass. Um, What's in your favour? Yeah, totally. So all the things that when I was growing up, like when I first started in advertising, these guys said to me, um, um, you're just too mouthy and too opinionated and, by the way, you're about to get fired for it. And I was just like, oh, my fucking God. Wait, someone these, these were just these assholes at the agency I was working at, my first agency. And I was. I was young. I was loud. I was, you know, I was like a little mini Bianca back then. <laughs> that is a huge compliment. compliment. That is a massive That's a huge compliment. I would tell I you. went to my CD and um, nearly in tears, just going, this is true, I'm about to get fired. And he just laughed. He said, just ignore them, you'll be a star. And it was just this, this wow. sense of someone, just, just the belief. And, I'm, you know, I'm still friends with him to this day. Mm. Uh, yeah, and, and, but, and, but realising that there'll always be people like that who won't like you for all those reasons and I'm still around and they're not. Fuck them. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Fuck them cunts. Fuck them. <laughs> but no one said that before. <laughs> and Dee, your Twitter feed is also witty and bold. Can you talk us through the process of uh, that feed? And how much hatred you can get for it? Um, yeah, I'm, uh, funny, I started on Twitter not being too political and just being just smart arsy, but now it's probably, <laughs> probably a little too political. Look, I used to get loads and loads of hate, um, particularly when I used to do Sky um, because it's got a very right-wing audience and I was not, um, obviously am not. You get a lot of people that tweet in caps, and it used to worry. Uh, well, no, you never used to worry me, but it used to sometimes get to you a little bit. Like you go, "Oh God, here we go!" But now I, I, I seem to get less. Hmm. Yeah, and um, and it, it doesn't worry me as much either. I'm just a little more useful. Like at one point, some someone sent some nasty stuff by mail to my house. That gets a little more. That's far more personal. So they found out where you live. Yeah, yeah, and that's the point where I, 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 I moved my electoral address to be hidden. Um, so those are the sort of things. But, no, I'm, I'm much tougher than I used to be about yeah. those kind of things. And I don't tend to, now not always, but I don't tend to, I, I don't tend to throw the first stone. But I do fight back on things, but not always. I just think sometimes I just think let it go. I'm not always good at that. But then I've also, say, got my Insta which um, I used to hate and now I'm enjoying enormously, which I have a completely political-free Instagram account. Yeah, yeah, far more personal, far more just you running about. Yeah, um, my son just, he keeps, every time I post something, he'll, he'll send me a DM going, that's not a story, Mum. Because <laughs> I decided to story or grammar. I know, and, and, but, it, no, he doesn't think it's good enough. No, and you know when it's not even good enough for a story? That's his thing is, like, you shouldn't just be putting that shit up at all. Um, so, yeah, he, he's a little bit judgy, judgy, but anyways. Yeah. <laughs> and I guess um, on the, you know, the political side and the, the, your Twitter account, is there an element of, you know, you owning what you say and then as time goes on people actually respect you for that? It's yeah, totally. There's an totally. element of why you're not getting as much hate now is because you're owning everything you say and people, yeah, I guess people respect you for that. Yeah, but also sometimes being prepared sometimes when you do go too far to say sorry as well. I think, you know, I, I, my, you know, I, I'm not perfect and, and, I, and in the heat of an exchange sometimes we all go too far, but I'm, I'm getting better at not. And, and I think, yeah, you're right, people sort of, you know, see I stick to, my guns, but I still get people, you know, you're just saying that because you're a Labour lackey or whatever, and it's like, well, yes. Or the funniest ones are you should, as a journalist, you shouldn't be so biased. It's like, well, 
I'm not a journalist. journalist? Yeah. <laughs> well, good thing I'm not a journalist then. So I am biased, and that's really obvious. In you know, yeah. So, it's, but, but also the people who hire you know that you have a very strong um, personality and also a very strong opinion, and they hire you for that reason as well. So it's kind of they they're expecting it, right? So you're kind of expecting it as well. They are, but when I work, particularly on election campaigns, it's you know you are working with a whole group of people, and and everyone anyone who's worked with me on campaigns is often surprised that I am less loud and opinionated. Like I'm, I'm definitely um, I don't know everyone who's worked with me on an election campaign has hired me for the next one, so I can't be that bad. But also, um, I'm I'm pretty sort of easy going in some ways and Bianca I could be wrong here because you've worked with me but I, I don't think I'm hard to work with no dear you're pretty you're pretty good to work with if anyone ever wants to work with Dee don't bullshit her she will see straight <laughs> through it yeah. <laughs> a no bullshit operator we like that. an absolute no bullshitter but also I think people also often they um they make me they expect me to be incredibly gregarious and you know and as Bianca knows I I'm <laughs> genuinely I'm really uncomfortable around people so I'll come in and you're an introvert. I'm introvert. desperately I'm sort of like I think what you call it's an extrovert and introvert. People say, "Why don't you run for politics?" Like, oh, I don't like people. I think that's a problem. people so, are the worst. They are. So I sort of I struggle with that. I sort of so um yeah. I think people are always a little bit surprised at that. Like I do get genuinely anxious. You know, I like that articulation. An extroverted introvert. introvert yeah. yeah, put me in front of a camera. I'm fine. Put me in a room full of people. Like if I'm on stage, I'm fine. Because in a sense you're almost in character or you've got something to say, but if it's just making small talk, it's like, oh, God, get me out of here or give me a drink. Yeah, so Dee used to take me to events, actually, yeah. because she has <laughs> recognition. So she would take me to an event and be like, this is Bianca, and then the person would have to introduce themselves so that Dee could then remember their name and then know exactly how to talk to that person. Bianca's job was always to find out the person's name. I, um, I don't, it's not just names I don't remember. I also don't remember faces, which is <laughs> awkward. Did, uh, did Bianca get an A plus for that? She was Bianca? very, very good at it. Um, yeah, it's particularly blokes for some reason. They all look alike. And I didn't oh, yeah. oh, no, no. Did you find yourself a boyfriend at one of those? Movies? I did not. No, but Dee's saying that. Oh, my God, I tried. Because she's got terrible taste. If there was a dickhead <laughs> in the room, Bianca found him every single time. <laughs> Dee, I'm trying to get a job out of this. <laughs> But, you know, I'd often go up to a guy and introduce myself. Yeah, well, the thing, I'd introduce myself, hi, I'm doing that again. And he'd be like, yeah, we worked together last week. And I'd be like, oh. Yeah. Yeah. That's a rough time. So if you, if anyone sees you in public alone, note to them, go and introduce yourself. And if you have met Dee before, don't say it. And don't take it personally as well. And it's worse if they're politicians because politicians, they've got fairly healthy egos and they kind of expect people to remember them and I, I don't. Yeah, but on the other side, if you haven't met Dee before and you introduce her, introduce yourself to her, tell her you've met her before. She'll call <laughs> Just <it> is. <laughs> And then you have to have a conversation. And then you have to have a conversation with yeah. Dee. So, <laughs> leverage. Um, so, moving so, so, yeah. on. Yeah. <laughs> I away. guess, um, Dee, there's a lot of young people listening to this podcast. Is there anything you could, um, or if there's any advice you could give them about one thing to absolutely do in their career and maybe one thing definitely not to do? God, that's a good question. Um, you know, I would, whether you're a writer or an art director, I would 
Definitely up your skills in terms of um, the technical side of social media posts, like be, be able to animate a GIF. That's just, the things have changed. In the, like when I first started, you had your art director and your copywriter. Then you had the um, your um, designers, and then you could have the people you know to animate things. Like it was four or five different roles. Agencies are increasingly trying to get more out of one role, so make sure that you tick more than one box. So do you think, you know, currently the traditional style is you have an art director and a copywriter. Do you think um, moving forward that that might merge into one? Look, I hope it doesn't. Oh, we, we here as Bianca knows, I keep having it completely unbalanced where I never sort of seem to have teams working constantly on things. And I, I really enjoyed it when I was working in a team. There is something, there is an element of trust in a team that I think means you get better creative because you can yeah. sit through the two of you and spitball and all the crappy stuff that you wouldn't be game to say to someone unless you really trusted them. Yeah, yeah. It's nice. Sometimes the gems are in those. So I hope it doesn't change. And I really, one of my goals in the next year or so is start, starting to get more teams who are dedicated to that. But the nature of our stuff, unfortunately, the problem is the copywriter job is in terms of the concepting and that is done a lot sooner now than the art director who's often... As I said, because they are now having to do the actual designing up of materials, particularly online, they're sort of stuck doing that for another week after the idea is done. Yeah. And as a copywriter, so you tend to move the copywriter onto another job. And, and yeah, for, for that reason, um, that's changed things. That the art director, to be honest, art directors have much more work to do than writers. Yeah. And that's made it a bit trickier. So if I was a writer, I'd make sure that I was also pretty good on that other side as well. So it's still work in teams, yeah. but where you're also helping the um, the graphic element as well. Yeah, absolutely. But in terms of um, in terms of females particularly, you know, that's just don't be afraid in meetings to say, you know, what you think. And you will get guys who will push back and say, oh, you need not to be self-opinionated. Guys will think a woman is louder than a man in a meeting even when she's not. Even when she says less, guys will think a woman says more. Like every single time, every bit of research has said that. Just ignore that and say it anyway. Don't sit back and, you know, don't feel like you have to be a little bit quieter. Um, I, I can tell you that there will be people who will hate it, but the only way you'll ever be seen as sort of future leader material is just to do that. If, if that's your personality. Yeah. And I guess on that female element um, in the creative department, why do you think there is a lack of females that are hired? Because people tend to like hires like. So what happens, you've got a male creative director mostly and he will hire a male because he will think in his head, he'll go, I think this guy will fit in well. And what, he, what he's really thinking is this guy reminds me of me. Yep. So there is that thing as well. So... That's a problem, I think. Um, do you think that's changing or do you think... It is because agencies now, you've got agency boards who will look at, um, you know, the makeup of the creative department. So I think we're getting more females in there. However, it's like with everything, you're getting more females in on the ground and then when you still look at the top, they're not represented. And part of it is that we do tend to go off and have kids. And as I said, part of the reason is that we are making money often at home, working part-time, and it's fairly decent money sometimes. But you've just got to be really careful that you don't fuck up your career by doing that and think, you know, that somehow you're trying to get back in at 45. It's just harder. So think about starting your own business and don't make it your one woman from home because that's not actually building a business. 
no, that's just being slave labour. Yeah, yeah, it is. And it also means that you're only as you're only kind of as good as you are. And yep. things are changing constantly. And you need to be hiring people who are good at new things as well that you mightn't be good at. And you can't sell yourself, you can't sell a company if you're just the company, really. It has to have been built more into that. So I, I think women need to think about starting their own businesses and starting them properly, renting a space, hiring staff, taking risks, and they are big risks, but the only way to build a business actually, I think, is to do that. Yeah, which you absolutely did with Campaign Edge. You partnered with, well, you kind of leveraged Cutting Edge, the post-production. I was really lucky with that in that I had been, I knew I wanted to start a business and I was flirting with one company about it and they were taking, they took me, they kept saying yes and took nearly a year and they were still far asking around and I was doing work with Cutting Edge. They were the production company we were using on election campaigns and I just happened to say to um, one of the business partners, I think there is space for a political ad agency. Um, I'm really interested in starting one. And he said, yes, we will back you. And literally had the lawyer's papers drawn up the next day. Like they own majority share, they're not morons. Um, But that meant, um, for me, that meant I had a back end, a business back end, and I I, I know what I'm good at and what I'm not good at. And the very first thing I did, the first hire I did was to hire someone who's good at all the shit I'm not good at. So that was uh, Stuart, my MD, um, who's good at um, the account side, who's good at fucking everything that I'm not good at, which is a really long list. So, you know, to start a business, you take the plunge, but also know what you're not good at and hire people who are good at that as well. And it just means as well I've had business advice from people who I trust and who've been in business themselves for many, many years. So if things are going a bit, you know, you have bad months and good months. We luckily have more good than bad. You know, you can go to them for advice or, you know, if there's staff issues or whatever, you can go and sort of say, look, how have you handled this in the past? So I'm lucky that I have had that kind of support network around me. How many many people are in your team now? Yeah, no, you see, this is something I should know and I don't. (laughs) <laughs> this is why I hire other people. Okay, we've got in Sydney. Let me literally just count. Uh, I've got one, two, three, four. We've got five in Sydney. We've got one in Melbourne, uh, two in Brisbane, and in Darwin we've got, I don't know, about 15? Yep. Yeah. So yeah, that's incredible. That uh, but, but I do know that 80% of them are women. Hell yeah. Hell what, yeah. What was that thing you were saying about like, highs like? Yeah, look, that is <laughs> Also, can I just say, partly this is because I found that a lot of blokes don't like taking direction from a woman. Interesting. Have you found that is consistent throughout your career? Oh, yeah, yeah. There's always some guys who, like, not all not all men, but there's a lot of them, yeah, who, who wow. were really, um, or, the, or it's much more subtle than that, but you'd sort of, they'd always, in the meeting, they'd be deferring to the guy in the meeting. You're like, I'm, I'm the one who makes the decision here. Yeah. Um, that is changing significantly, but um, yeah, that's it's, it's not like I've gone out of my way to hire women. It's just um, that all the women I've hired happen to have been awesome. So there you go. I'll take that one. Yeah. <laughs> Another little gold star for Bianca. If anyone's still hiring. <laughs> <laughs> um, and what about something to avoid in their career, or something you wish you knew that you did differently? Or oh, do you know what? There's there, I used to. Um, one of the things I used to say to myself is, oh, you should have kept your mouth shut in things. And then I realised that not doing that was the best advice. You learn more from you learn more from your failures than your successes anyway. So, you know what, 
just do it all. But, you know, try not to be a dickhead and try to treat people decently. And here, okay, here's the, the wise thing is you never know where someone's going to end up. Yeah. So be a bit careful in, um, in how you treat people, I think. Is there, is it, don't be a dickhead is a great articulation. Yeah, yeah. Well, at the end of the day, it's a very small industry. Ad world is, is quite tiny, so you never know who you're going to be sitting next to in five to ten years. Exactly, exactly. Or who's going to be your client. Oh, my God, yes, yes, yes. So, so yeah, just to be a little bit circumspect in terms of what you say to whom and, and when. Save the bitching for, um, for very small groups of friends who you trust. Leave it off emails. Leave it <laughs> off emails. Put it on Twitter, though. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, like sometimes I will, um, you know, speak about some client. Oh, no, I'll speak about some brand. I'll be asked to speak about some brand on TV and I'll smash them for doing the wrong thing and blah, blah. And I come in in the morning and Stuart just goes, well, I'll cross them off our list of future to work with. <laughs> well, I didn't want them anyway. Yeah, but secretly, you know, I wouldn't mind their money. <laughs> well, like talking about brands and clients, the industry is changing and, like, we know that a lot of, agencies are moving from retainer-based models to more project-based models because that's how clients are doing it. So yeah. is there any kind of advice you would give to young people in the industry who might be worried about job security and how to maybe future-proof themselves moving forward? Future-proof and moving forward. Wow. Yeah. Well, Utopia. <laughs> um, look, we have really not had retainers since I've been in business, which is, you know, six years, whatever now. It's, I don't, I don't, um, I, retainers would be great in theory, but the idea of every month having to justify what you've done for it, I think would actually be really stressful. I don't, I quite like doing project to project where there is a start and a finish and you have to work really hard on it and make sure, and it keeps you fresh, I think as well. Whereas I think retainers, there is that um, old, you know, familiarity breeds contempt. But my concern with the whole industry or it's not a, a new concern, it's an old concern, is still the amount of interns and unpaid interns is just horrific and a fucking, sh you know, a, a shame on the whole industry for doing it because we should be better than that. Yeah, yeah, that's, I think that's an interesting point. You know, quite often as a uni student, to get a job you need experience. So students are willing to work for nothing and spend, you know, hours of the night up working at a bar to sort of justify why they've been working um, at, a, at an agency or... Um, at a company to, um, I guess, be able to pay their rent. Um, and I guess, you know, as soon as you move into that grad program, that's minimum wage anyway. So, yeah, it's an interesting point. Experience don't pay the rent, family. Yeah, and also I think the other thing is you end up with, a, with an industry full of private school kids because the only people who can afford to intern for a year unpaid in an ad agency tend to be you know, wealthier kids, so you get an industry. A, it means that working class, advertising, the great thing about it for the creatives, if you're good at ideas, you'll be good at it. So it's one of those, in a way, it's an equaliser industry in that it really is about talent. And yeah, so it should be away from kids from sort of quite, um, you know, poor, economically poor backgrounds to break into it as long as they're talented, but they're just not getting the chance because they're being blocked out by a whole lot of private school kids you know willing to work for free but for a year or so and you know what those kids will still not get a job at the end of it if they're not talented that's the thing they're just almost taking up space I think you know whether someone is good or not good within a week easy like I, I would still pay I think everyone should be on even if it's a trial on a minimum wage at least 
with a really fixed time on it that, you know, three weeks on a minimum wage and then either you employ them or you don't. Yeah, absolutely. And that's right. You can, you can learn a lot from someone or how they work and how they think after just a week. Absolutely. And if they've done award school, you've seen their book anyway. So, you know, I, I think that hasn't, that unfortunately hasn't changed in the industry. But yeah, what has changed is because agencies are doing project to project, it's harder for them to financially predict ahead, which makes, in theory, it makes staffing hard, right? Because you think, well, you can't guarantee that there's going to be work. But in reality, having done you know, said six years of it, you actually can make a pretty good prediction about, you know, you think, well, if we picked up this many projects last year, there's actually no reason why it won't be, you know, vaguely the same. And that's been true for us. So it has meant we are able to hire staff, like all our staff are, I think, I know, I think, oh, definitely in Sydney, um, except for Tammy, who chooses not to be. Yeah. Um, and in, in Brisbane, they are, Melbourne, they are. And I think Darwin, the ones who want to be are, yeah. Yeah. Do you think there's, um, you know, I guess as juniors, we worry that a lot of clients are looking for senior creative directors or um, senior planners or planning directors. Do you think that then pushes young people out of those project model bases? Yeah, a little bit, I guess, because it gives the, the client has, a, you know, they can say part of the reason they will award the um, job is on the basis that there'll be senior people working on it, which I actually get from the client point of view. Absolutely. Yeah, I think it's, I think from a creative point of view, it's a little bit crazier though, because I think sometimes younger creatives can bring a completely different perspective to it as well. But you know what, it would depend on the brand, but really the agency should be able to say to the client, look, we will have a senior, you know, we'll have a creative director on it. Yeah. Who will be overseeing? Exactly, exactly. And, and I think agencies need to stick up to clients, stick, uh, yeah, stand up to clients a little bit on that because you don't want the client dictating how you resource your company. As, as a creative director, you should be able to decide which creatives are best on that particular project. Of course. Yeah, of course. absolutely. So there you have it, everyone. That's a little bit of D Madigan. So we're about to move into the pitch. Now it's time to put your talents to the test. Now it's time to give a scenario to our guests. So what will be a strategy? Break it down. Let's see how you do it. Problem insight, strategy, and solution. Woo! Considering this is an all-female panel, I thought I would be hilarious and write a brief about the male contraception pill. So the background is... The male contraception pill is coming and it'll change the way you do too. For over 50 years, women have held the majority of the responsibility for hormonal contraception. Some say there's been less societal and commercial will um, to get the male pill off the ground. But there are UK polls suggesting that men would consider taking the pill if it did become available. Last year, the pill known as 11-beta-MNTDC, which definitely needs a catchier name, passed the first round of rigorous human safety tests with research from Los Angeles Biomedical Research Institute and the University of Washington showing promising results. For the first time, researchers have tested a drug that managed to safely reduce hormones required for sperm reduction without drastically affecting men's sex drive or sexual performance, unlike other male contraceptives. So this is a big deal. It's no SNP, no condoms, and only has a few side effects. But hey, women have been dealing with hormonal side effects for half a century. It might be a hard pill to swallow, but it's time to share the load. Contraception is everyone's responsibility. 
So D, your task was to create an integrated campaign to launch the new contraception pill in Australia. And it was a budget about uh, $500,000, but who really cares? <laughs> D, what do you think? What did you take away from this? Well, I reckon guys like to think they're very rational creatures. I don't think they are. No one is particularly make all purchasing decisions emotionally. But So I would wrap it up in, so it felt, felt like they were making a rational decision. And it, what I found out was a child costs $300,000 to raise. Wow. Wow. <laughs> My line would be take the pill, avoid the bill. Ooh, interesting. A whole lot of, so you layer it out with, you know, you'd have a, you know, a Mercedes AMG S65 coupe, you know, which is nearly $300,000. And then you, you'd have that up and then you'd cut to a screaming child. It's like you take your pick. <laughs> and you can do a whole lot of things, you know, that are, you know, three hundred worth around $300,000 a year. And uh, and basically then also you'd, um, you you could run the ad as well in, you know, on the bottom of their phone bill, you know, any any bill they get, you know, remind them how much money they're going to save by not having a child. Yeah. I wonder what you could buy for over three. What, what, what? So that, and that's only one child. That's assuming that's you're not one, having twins. Yes. That's yeah. like that's a huge assumption. Exactly. Because I guess you know, male, uh, females can only carry one child in a year, and then males can impregnate. We'd impregnate a few. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they can just keep going. But what? But D, like to the point of that, why would they take the pill and not just ask their their partner to? Because no, because women have babies accidentally all the time. Mm. Yeah. You know, you'd sort of, you know, you'd say that you'd bring, like on your text post, you'd go, so many babies were, you know, accidentally born last year. There were so many accidents. Uh, this is how many palamine, pal is it palamine, where you're up for paternity? Oh, uh, right, yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, like yeah. the sea kind of yeah. things and... Yeah. And yeah. Basically, you've got to make them not trust the woman's going to take the pill, which is a nasty way to do it, but that's what I'd probably do. You could send them a text on Father's Day and be like, happy yeah. accidental Father's, Father's yeah, Day. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> You're, so, you're not going to give your dad his, you know, $300,000. Oh, God, yeah. You can so, break it down yearly. Oh, yeah, break, break it down, down yearly. Send them a bill once a year. Yeah, instead of a child, you could have, you know, a bottle of champagne every single day for the rest of your life. Oh, that would be nice. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, so I guess what we're saying here is that women have been paying for sex up until now or up until this pill comes about or comes live onto market. Women have been what? Paying for sex. Like, we're so, paying for safety at the moment. So oh, right. Yeah, yeah. Like what, yeah. what kind of makes a man go, oh, well, women are doing it anyway. You know, why Why should I if the woman's looking after it anyway? Oh, looking after the baby. You're still up for the money. Oh, looking after the pill or looking after oh, the contraception. No guy in the world is thinking about what a woman has spent on contraception. No, absolutely not. And then when you break it down by cost, so this pill that I've been on, I can't remember what I paid back in the day, but this pill that I'm on now costs about $89. I get three packs with it, 28 tablets. So let's just say I've been paying $29.60 each month over 120 months. That means I've paid, you know, over or just over $3,500 to be on the contraceptive pill and to control my fertility and have sex without getting pregnant which is, I, th I don't think, I haven't thought about that before up until now, and I guess no males have either. No, but I don't think males would really care that much. That's my problem with that. It's, it's, it's horrific that women do that, but I don't think, don't think it's something that's going to motivate most blokes to take the pill. So then why would they take the pill over using condoms? Uh, because 80% of condom, the condom rate is um, 
has a higher pa- failure rate than a pill. That's true. Um, I was I was having this conversation with someone recently. Um, so how do you get around the thought that the only way to confirm whether or not the pill works is to risk getting pregnant? Mm-hmm. You know, so like, I mean, I mean of course, um, so yeah, the only really way to test whether or not it works is to, you know, finish inside and see what happens and like hope for the best with your fingers crossed. So is there a way to get around that kind of thought pattern? Oh, I think most people realise with, the um, amount of people suing people at the moment that medical companies wouldn't release a pill unless they were really, really bloody sure. That right. And the other thing as well is most pill, the failure of most female pills is often because females take them at different times every day or skipping a couple and that, whereas with this, if it's a male pill, you're in control. So, And that's an interesting point on control. Like we've spent, you know, women have spent years trying to get control of their bodies and now this, this is a moment in time where we're going to, or potentially pass that control into the hands of our sexual partner? Do we trust them? Should we trust the men? Yeah, actually, that now that brings up, that's an entirely different argument. Yeah, I would still be, like, if you didn't know him well enough to trust him, you should be using a condom anyway. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, people make human errors. We've all made them before. So I guess it's the female that takes that physical toll if something was to happen. Well, that's the whole thing, though. We've been accepting hormonal changes and hormonal tolls on our pill, and we found that in some of the research we've done for this contraceptive pill for men, there is still some, you know, hormonal changes. They do get a little bit sad every now and again. Some of them get a little chubby. And men seem that seems to be a huge deterrent. So how do you is it is that still not worth the three hundred thousand dollars of raising a child? So say that again. So uh, we did some research on yeah. the male contraceptive pill and yeah. There are still some side effects, a bit of weight gain, a little bit of sadness, a little bit of moodiness. Sounds familiar. Sounds familiar, (laughs) but it still seems to be a bit of a deterrent for men. So will, you know, your idea of saying this or that, um, will that still deter men and make them want to buy the pill? Yeah, because all you do is show them photos of men with children who are probably really moody and slightly overweight anyway. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> so you're saying they're going to get like that anyway exactly. yeah, here's the practice it's inevitable at least try and avoid <laughs> it if you're a dad or not you will have a dead body one day so you know just embrace <laughs> it and honestly kids make you moodier than any pill could possibly do to all our beautiful dad body kings out there we just still appreciate you don't worry about it <laughs> yeah i think that um the the female contraception is an interesting thing like how it came on market there were so many tests and there were so many lawsuits like you said and i think an interesting thing that we found was that you know continuously we've been told that we have to take the pill for 21 days and you have the seven day break because you have to have a period but now what's being found is that that rule and quote rule because it was they had to have it approved by the Vatican for then it to go on market. And they thought that the Vatican would only allow it if women still had their monthly period. Um, the Vatican said no, but, um, you know, still today we still have this seven-day break. Yes. And, no. But the point I guess I'm making here is that it all started on what we thought a higher male figure would approve for us. Yes, yeah. But you know what the reality is? Even if there is a male pill, women, if you don't want a baby, still stay on the pill. You're responsible for your body. They're also responsible for theirs. If everyone's on the pill, there's even if males and females are on the pill, the chances of unwanted pregnancies are even less. Yeah, that's a that's a great point because I think continually women will still start or still stay on their contraception. Yeah, well, and they should. Um, but I guess it's just 
yeah, double proofing it. Well, I think on a different point of view to this, well, has researchers come out to say that having a child is one of the worst things you can do for the environment? So is there, would you ever consider putting a strategy into making it a more environmentally friendly pra- practice to be on the male contraceptive pill? No, no one, that's, no one is going to not have, like, no, that's not true. There are some people who will not have a child for environmental reasons, but they are the most insignificant part of the market. You've got to choose, you, you know, the thing that's going to motivate the most amount of people and it will not be your weird hippie environmental dude who's not going to bring a child into this world. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that was a really nice voice you did there. He's never getting laid anyway because he's really smelly because he uses patchouli oil instead of deodorant. Oh, he lives in Nimbin. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> um, cool. Is there anything else you'd like to add, Dee? Uh, no, there is not. Are you sure? All right. Well, thank you, Dee Madigan from Campaign Edge for coming and hanging out with us. Thanks so much for chatting to us. No worries, girls. No worries, girls. Girls, thank you. And again, if anyone has a school electoral coming up, um, if they need to do a quick vote on anything, contact Dee Madigan if you have a good budget. And if you have a job for Bianca, you should hire her. Thank you, Dee. <laughs> <laughs> My God, just look at us giving each other work. I love it. Okay. Uh, thanks, Dee. Thanks, we'll talk- Dee. We'll talk to you later. All right, guys. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Are you still there? Dee? Dee? Yeah, uh, son of a bitch. Yeah, this is something you don't want to miss. Uh-huh. Interviews with creatives and the best strategists. All the top in Australia who steady making moves. Uh-huh. The podcast that puts you right in the pitch room. Yeah, professionals in this market. Uh, time to get it started. Uh, give us some complex problems. So let's see how you can solve it. Tune in with some Aussies. I bet you can't resist. Yeah, yeah, get it hyped. This is son of a bitch. Dylan, you son of a bitch.